This podcast episode is brought to you by Paleo Valley's Organic Extra Virgin Olive Oil. Now, we all know that many olive oils are cut with seed oils or that they are rancid, and so it's not always easiest to find a quality and properly sourced olive oil. Yes, in case you didn't know, many store bought olive oils are diluted or blended, compromising both taste and quality, and may even cause rancidity. I'm really glad that Paleo Valley's extra virgin olive oil remains pure and unadulterated, sourced from a single organic valley in Greece. Paleo Valley ensures freshness and nutrient content by packaging their olive oil in dark glass bottles. At a certain point, I stopped using extra virgin olive oil, but once our practice started working with people with chronic inflammatory response syndrome or SIRS, we started recommending it for the reduction of TGF beta 1. It is an immune system marker that shows inflammation both for COVID 19, SIRS, and actually many other illnesses. So if your TGF beta 1 is high, you may want to try incorporating a little bit of extra virgin olive oil. Make sure to check it out. It comes in a two pack package. And remember, All Paleo Valley products are guaranteed with a money back guarantee. Go to paleovalley.com slash nwj to get 15% off your order. Thanks for supporting companies that support this podcast. Hey guys, it's Judy from Nutrition with Judy. Thanks for joining me today. While you're here, please make sure to like and subscribe. If you're listening to this on podcast, please make sure to leave a review as this allows my content to get in front of more people. And thank you for that. My name is Judy Cho, and I'm board certified in holistic nutrition. And I have a private practice where we focus on root cause healing, and that often starts with the carnivore cures all meat elimination diet. This episode is really a presentation I did in the summer of this year. I was asked to speak to a SIRS community or the chronic inflammatory response syndrome community about why carnivore is an ideal diet. When you're speaking to a carnivore or meat based community that knows about why meat is so beneficial for health and why a lot of the mainstream narrative is not ideal for optimal wellness, it's pretty easy to talk about little topics. So, how do you address that with the average person that doesn't know much about? Meat being good and actually plants being not always so good. So, I had to think about a way to just share this information about carnivore and why carnivore is an ideal elimination diet and why it's just optimal for health. So, in this talk, I really share just everything that you sort of need to know as to why carnivore is truly the ultimate elimination diet to really get you to optimal health, heal your gut. And lots of other things such as reducing inflammation. I hope that this video or this episode really also helps you be a resource for people that are not on a carnivore diet and then think that you're kind of crazy or that you even want to share this and just not sure how to share it. Well, this is a way that I kind of gave a summation of why carnivore is truly optimal for ideal living or optimal healing. So there are parts in this presentation that is specific to SIRS, which is chronic inflammatory response syndrome. It's where your body is dealing with chronic inflammation, especially because of a biotoxin illness. So just if I bring up certain letters like MMP9 or TGF beta 1 or Just things like that, or if I say SIRS, that's really the context. But really, ultimately, anyone that deals with inflammation, which is pretty much from all modern illness and from our modern day diet, it will still make sense in context. Okay, guys, let's get into the lecture. This conversation is really about why carnivore is ideal for optimal health. 50 million Americans struggle with mental illness at one point in their life. And 
uh, truly the number is about 13 million suffer daily. And it's even more with COVID. So if you look at this number, there was a CDC study done in 2020. So late June of 2020, that was the peak of COVID. 40% of American adults reported struggling with mental health or substance abuse. And while we take a lot of medications for that, I don't think it's the right answer. Um, as you can see in my notes, there's a number of people treated for depression has tripled and 10% of America takes some type of SSRIs. And uh, those are supposed to stop the serotonin from getting up taken from your brain. And I'll talk about that more about serotonin in a second. But in addition to that, so this is the medication I was on, but antipsychotics are added when depression medications aren't working fully. And in 2012, they were the most popular sold medications out there. And just one of them was Abilify, and it was a billion dollar business in just one year. And again, there are more people that being diagnosed every year for depression. And if these meds were working, then why are more people taking it and more people are getting diagnosed? It's just something to think about for a second. So we just talked about serotonin, but while the medications for the stopping of the serotonin and keeping more in your brain isn't necessarily fully working, what we have seen is that with low cholesterol, there is a link to depressed mood and that serotonin dysfunction is implied in major depression and also with suicide. So we know that serotonin is mainly in two places. One is the brain and one is the gut. And actually majority of the serotonin is in our gut. Now it can't past the blood brain barrier, meaning that whatever is in your gut cannot go into your brain, but they're all neurotransmitters. So they're all connected. They all communicate with each other. Um, and so if you think about, well, where, how do we produce serotonin then? Well, the biggest way is we get it through tryptophan, which is an essential amino acid. It's mostly in meats. And then you see all of these things again, I'm not going to read it to you, but you'll get this deck. It's Um, It's all there, but you see that you need like vitamin B's, you need B6, B9, you need vitamin D, and you need all of these things to then basically convert to help serotonin be at its maximum potential within your body. And then you need enough serotonin to also produce melatonin, which helps you to sleep. So that's one thing to consider is we are being told to eat less meat, but we need these things to actually support our mood and then also to even help us sleep. So looking at the next slide, you see that 95%, again, of serotonin is in the gut. But the thing is that 64% of Americans are suffering from gut disease. And as I did a lot of this research, you see that there is this really stark connection between an unhappy gut and an unhappy brain. So again, I'm not going to read through all of this, but you see, for example, a reduced dopamine produces mood swings and depression and low libido, a reduced GABA um, affects um, anxiety and feelings of fear. And then again, as we were talking about reduced serotonin and then inadequate melatonin. So then the question becomes, well, why do we even have unhappy guts, right? Why why does our gut have issues? And I believe it starts with the diet, a lot of it. So this is some of the ways that leaky gut occurs in our bodies, and you see there's dietary proteins, and this isn't really literally just meat. As an example, if you think about gluten, it's one of the hardest uh, proteins to digest. And as for the SERS community, we are told to go on a low amylase diet. So there will be a lot of um, a lot of SERS clients cannot tolerate gluten. I think this is one of the reasons, but you see all these other things. So antibiotics, infections, toxins, including biotoxins, and even stress and food allergies. So all of these things can trigger 
our gut mucosal lining to become a little bit less um, tight junction. And the more that there is loose junctionings or broken junctions, like the way it's shown here, that's what ends up happening where any bit of food that then goes into your bloodstream, which is not supposed to be there, well, that then can cause the blood brain barrier to be breached so that stuff can go into your brain, inflammation to occur, autoimmune, where your body starts flagging proteins that may have been from food as a invader, but then now there are proteins in your body that look very similar. And so the body accidentally starts tagging proteins in your own body. And that's what ends up having um, autoimmunity. And then additionally, you start getting malabsorption and nutrient nutritional deficiencies. And for in relation to the SIRS community, we know that low MSH causes our intestinal mucosal lining to also be less ideal. So even more so, I think diet is one of the main levers that we can pull when we are struggling with low MSH levels. So, and I also believe that people with leaky gut, um, that every single bite then really matters in terms of nutri- nutritional density. So it's either that your food is going to be a foe or it's going to be a friend. And based on what we're eating, that will um, determine that. So if you think about a lot of the way that we're eating, one other thing is that our annual sugar consumption per person has increased tremendously. So we, um, it's a fact that sugar dampens our immune system. And so in 1800s, we were consuming about 22 pounds of sugar per year. Whereas now in 2009, it's about 176 pounds of um, sugar a year. We were never intended to eat this much sugar. And the question is, well, why does it matter? I mean, sugar is an energy source. It gives us energy, but I'm going to share some of the biochemistry of that. So one, our blood sugar is supposed to be balanced between the 80 and 120 milligram per deciliter section. So this is normal blood sugar. So if you were to ever prick your finger with those glucose monitors, you want your blood sugar generally to be in that space. But if you keep eating higher carb foods, what ends up happening is your blood sugar goes up. And so your body needs to make sure the blood sugar is balanced again. So what will happen is insulin will be released from your pancreas to reduce the blood sugar. And so then sometimes your insulin will overshoot and then your energy will dip under that level. And then you may feel tired. So then that's where people get some coffee. They may get some more sugar and it goes through this constant um, roller coaster, the blood sugar roller coaster. So something to think about with this is this, our body generally has about five liters of blood in the entire body. And if you were to do the calculations, I did the mathematical calculations. So you just have to kind of trust me on this, but Um, in order to have blood sugar between 80 and 120 milligrams, you only have about four grams of, uh, blood sugar, um, sugar in your blood, which equals out to less than one teaspoon of sugar in your blood at any given time. And so that doesn't mean necessarily that you can only eat less than one teaspoon per meal, but if you're constantly having 200 grams, again, 200 versus four, like two to 300 grams of carbs every single meal, imagine what's going on with the roller coaster through your day and why you feel such poor energy. And eventually we're having this one little pancreas have to produce insulin. But over time, as we constantly do this thing throughout our body, our insulin starts to, I guess, malfunction though, uh, uh, the way that the insulin is producing. And that's what they call insulin resistance or hyperinsulinemia. And, you know, I really just want to reiterate this, but 88 million Americans are suffering from prediabetes and 34 are suffering from type two. 
And this illness is a hundred percent reversible with diet. So we know that we are just consuming too much sugar or carbohydrates for our benefit. And um, this is another example of what I was talking about earlier. So this is a little pancreas or right here, sorry, um, that produces the, uh, the insulin. And so what ends up happening is if you see right here specifically, the carbohydrates are, um, they really require a, the blood sugar skyrockets. And so insulin has to come down and then protein doesn't do that as much. And fat really doesn't do that as much either. So the less we are tapping into insulin, the better we can have to stabilize blood sugars. We don't have to have insulin do that job for us. And eventually as insulin is not being um, produced as well, or it's not as efficient from the pancreas, eventually our bodies have to tap into cortisol to then balance our blood sugar. So now the blood sugar is not really going down as it should. Insulin isn't doing its job to pull it down, or it's like maybe pushing it down too much. And so then to regulate that 80 to 120 milligram level, cortisol has to come in and to then balance your blood sugar. So the reason why I'm bringing this specifically up is we see so many people, especially women with hormone imbalances and cortisol is a hormone. And if you look at this, I know this is a lot of information, but really what I want you to look at is cortisol is part of the steroid hormone pathway. And we need the way that it's produced is with B5 and acetyl-CoA, but it's produced with cholesterol. So Yes, we produce cholesterol within our body, but we need sufficient fat levels to even support this whole area. And if our blood sugar is constantly dysregulated, you see that there's multiple ways that, you know, cholesterol can go down here and produce estradiol. It can go down here and produce estriol. It can go over here and produce aldosterone, which balances our salt levels. And then it can go here for cortisol. If our blood sugar is constantly above that 80 to 120, we can really get sick and even die. And if it gets too low, we can also die. So our body will end up always prioritizing what will allow us to survive for another day. So it will always go here first. And that's the thing that I really want to drive home is which when it comes to consuming too much sugar, your body is going to do everything it can to balance this. And this is also um, includes exercise and high stress levels, as well as, um, poor sleep. Okay. So moving to the next part, um, just to reiterate, so all of those cortisol hormones, so the cholesterol then can produce again, the pregnenolone, and these are the main steroid hormones. So it's your sex hormones. It's your mineral corticoids, which is the balancing of your salt levels. And then it's that glucose level. And the main reason I want to bring this up is we see that a lot of there's a lot of people, especially on the internet that love to say, oh, your thyroid levels are imbalanced. So therefore you should supplement some type of medication for your thyroid or your sex organs are imbalanced. You don't have your period or you have hot flashes or, um, or you're so struggling with PCOS. So then they support this. But if we were to just think about all of those cortisol hormones, we just talked about, and it's the core is that we're eating too much sugar. We're high stressed and all of those things. The body is going to prioritize this because this part is the part that um, supports the cortisol levels. So when your body prioritizes this, all of these other areas will then get less prioritized. So is your thyroid imbalance really that you have an excess focus on cortisol and the adrenals? And also because maybe you're not eating sufficient fat and same thing with the sex organs. Uh, one thing 
that PCOS or polycystic ovarian syndrome, as well as Alzheimer's, it's actually classified as type three diabetes. So what it happens then if we reduce the sugar levels that we're consuming every day. And when I say sugar, I don't mean just literally sugar or added sugar. I mean, all levels, all types of carbohydrates, whether it's bread, rice, carbs, um, even plant foods and fruits, all of those eventually get um, converted to some type of glucose in the body, which then will make your blood sugar go up. Okay, so moving on. Um, The next section is really about um, our brain. So our brain is 60% fat. Um, Even though our brain is only 2% of our weight, it consumes 20 to 30% of our total calories. The brain is about 60% cholesterol or give or take, there's other fatty acids there too. But again, we are told that we should be reducing our cholesterol levels and that you know, eating cholesterol causes a lot of these issues in animal foods. So let's talk through some of the mistruths in nutrition. Okay, number one, so we just talked about the the cholesterol. So most people then are told by their doctors, if their cholesterol markers are too high, that they should get on statins. Well, here's a really simple um, study that's been in the British Medical Journal, it showed that of 75% of the 35 trials that Uh, they reported on, uh, they showed no reduction in mortality with people um, taking these statins or these cholesterol lowering drugs. So if you think about that, um, there was another study where it showed that half of the people that um, had a heart attack, um, half of them were on statins, or they were on some type of medication to balance their uh, cholesterol markers, but they still had heart attacks. The other thing is that if we just were to take a logical thought in all of the heart disease and meat is bad for you, heart disease is a very new illness. If you look back even 150 years ago, there were, there were some salesmen that were trying to sell EKG monitors for your heart health. And a lot of the doctors didn't want to buy it because no one was suffering from heart disease. So the question becomes, we've been eating animals our entire human life and animals have always been around. So why are we now thinking this old food is now the, the culprit of this new disease? It's just something that we should be considering. Uh, the, so in 2015, the FDA uh, removed the upper limits for dietary cholesterol levels. And again, here's the studies. I'm going to give you this deck, but it shows right here, cardiovascular disease is a leading cause of death. We all know that. So to date, extensive research showed that there's no evidence to support a role of dietary cholesterol in the development of CBD. And so therefore, between 2015 to 2020, the new dietary guidelines for Americans, they removed the cholesterol, the dietary cholesterol caps. But how many of us really know that? And how much is corporate media still sharing that we should reduce our cholesterol levels? Again, there is no upper limit for cholesterol, dietary cholesterol um, in the, the dietary guidelines for Americans. Hey guys, just to let you know, my Carnivore Cure book is back in stock. For nine months, it was out of print and used prices were up to $300. Make sure to get your copy today that has over 200 colored tables and graphics and over 400 pages of meaty goodness. We have a limited supply, so get your copy today on Amazon.com. And if you can leave a review, I'd be super grateful. And then, so knowing what I just shared with you, the World Health Organization during COVID recommends, this is their recommendation. So they recommend that we consume more unsaturated fats, so less cholesterol, 
from soy, canola oil, sunflower, and corn oils. I'm going to talk about those oils in a second, but again, it says to eat less saturated fat. So less fatty meat, less butter, all of these have a lot of saturated fats and cholesterol, but we know again, that our brain is 60% fat. So it makes you wonder why, like, why, why are we supposed to remove that? Maybe it's the carbs and not the fat. One of the questions I get about the carnivore diet is that, well, where do you get your vitamin C if you're eating mostly meat? And just wanted to share this with you. So this is the RDA. Um, it's the, the authoritative source of information for nutritional allowances for healthy people. And if you see right here in all the additions, it's gone up in terms of adult recommendations. So in 1974, so just 26 later, years later, you see a doubling of the vitamin C recommendations. Why is that? I mean, were they really that wrong in 26 years prior to 20, 2000? Or is there some other reason we need more vitamin C? Well, one of the things is that vitamin C and glucose sugar, um, they compete like one of the receptors, this glute receptor, vitamin C and glucose compete for the same um, absorption in that. So is it possibly that we are consuming more sugar? And it's not that we necessarily need more vitamin C, it's just that less of the vitamin C is getting absorbed. And if that is the case, wouldn't the root cause actually be that we just need less glucose and it's not that we need that much more vitamin C? Again, it's just, um, if you go back to this, wh why the doubling? It's a 100% increase in just 26 years. Can it be that it's because we're eating too much sugar? There are meats that have vitamin C. I know that they're not the most popular meats, but still there are meats. Um, and I just wanted to tell you one story. So the biggest reason we think vitamin C and the concern of deficiency is the sailor story with scurvy. So there was a story where there were uh, men on a boat and, and half of the men got scurvy and which is the vitamin C deficiency and illness. But one of the things that I'd really like to challenge with that story is, well, all of the men were eating the same food. So why only did half of the men get scurvy and the other half, supposedly they were eating zero vitamin C. How come they didn't get scurvy? And so maybe there's something else to the story. And again, um, oh, and I'll show you the next slide. Sorry. Let's see. Okay. And then the other thing is in 2016, they had all these nutritional fact label changes. So you see right here, um, two of the things that were changed, there was a several things, but two things were one, um, they no longer required vitamin A and C as deficiencies um, listed on nutritional labels because most people um, do not have a vitamin A or C deficiency. So the question becomes, are we, do we really have to worry about vitamin C? And then the other thing they added was now vitamin D and potassium is shown to be a bigger deficiency. So now those are the labels and you guys can check the labels yourselves. Sometimes people still add the vitamin A and C, maybe the companies don't have the new technology, but you will always see potassium and vitamin D. And just, we'll talk about this in a second, but we all think of potassium. One of the major foods of potassium is bananas. And we'll talk about that in a second. So we can't talk about all the food um, and meats without talking about the climate. So let's touch upon that really quickly. Um, I, I dug into this uh, report from the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency about what really causes the greenhouse gas emissions. And if you really dig through it, I think it's like 500 pages of writing, you will then come up with that the main culprits for greenhouse gases are actually electricity, transportation, and industry. And in fact, the agricultural is really small. It's about 3.7. And even with 
beef, it's about 1.9. But again, we hear that the cows and their farts and their, their burps are what's destroying our environment. And so we have to wonder, well, why do they think that? And again, I put the, um, the report here and um, in my book, I actually share the mathematical, how I came up with this 1.9%. And the one blessing or the one very, very small blessing of the COVID is that we were able to really see greenhouse gases and how it's affected by humans and rather than by animals. So this graphic really shows the nitrogen dioxide levels from greenhouse gases. And you could see just in amount of three months, um, this is a comparison of the same exact time between March 1st to April 5th, year over year. And this is when we were in lockdown for COVID. The animals were not in lockdown. It was the humans and all the transportation and all of that. So why was there such a decline if it's really the animals that are causing climate change? And, and this is also from National Geographic. It's not some conspiracy theorist website. Um, so here's another one. This is the same type of information. And this, the blue means that there was a decrease in the greenhouse gases. And then the purple was a little bit of the increase. But again, this is in a different country. And again, you see the decline. So it begs the question of why, again, are we bl blaming the animals when the animals were never on lockdown? The last thing I want to share with the climate is really, or one of the last is um, this one. So there's such a thing called green, gray, and blue matter, uh, blue water. So green water is essentially all the water that we get from rainwater, and it just is kind of um, there. Gray water is all the recycled water, and the blue water is the true clean water from our lakes. So we hear that animals take up all our water. And so from if you look at this, it kind of looks true, like beef is up here, pork, chicken, eggs. But if you look at the type of water, it uses mostly green, which is water that we cannot really use. It's the water that goes into the soil from the rain. But if you look at cotton, for example, or even tea, or even um, like sugarcane, this is the true water that is in from our lake and resources. So again, it's this other type of, you know, we, we hear that beef takes so much water, but it's the context that really matters. And so again, it's not really that the beef is consuming all our water. If anything, it's the cotton. If you look at this, uh, one other thing I wanted to share is about California. So California is considered one of the most drought prone states. And if you look right here, the darker burgundy color is where it's extremely drought prone. Red is extreme. Sorry. The burgundy was exceptional. And yet most of our plant-based foods are raised in California. And if you see right here, um, almonds, 99% of all U.S. almonds are pre, uh, basically harvested here. Walnuts, pistachios, and I can go on and on and on. So we think of the climate impact, the footprint, only when it comes to water or the greenhouse gases. But there's a lot more than that. Why are we raising all our plant-based foods or a lot of it in California in a drought-prone state. Think about all the resources of all the cars that are taken to, or the trucks that have to bring in the water or those, um, everything else that it requires. And in addition, for every almond, it requires one gallon of water in a area that is so drought prone. So again, it just begs the question of, are we really doing a benefit by going more plant-based? Uh, one other concern that we hear all the time is that animals, um, unless you eat the grass finished variety, that you're getting so many antibiotics and hormones. And I want to contest that. So here's an image where you see hormone levels. This is 
you'll see in quinoa, for example, for three ounces of here, let's see, where's the quinoa? Okay. It's right here. There's no um, serving size, but we can even look at three ounces of tofu. There's 19 million NG of estrogens versus a traditional steak. It's 7.6. So this, per, this animal has never received antibiotics. And then the natural steak, which may have had some injections, or maybe I'm saying, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm flipping that around. But again, look at the comparison. So again, it's that context that matters. And you can see with spinach and so on. And then you look at humans in general, we produce this much daily. um, And again, if you compare this with meat, it's not a significant amount. So I want to go back and talk about the fat, how fat is made. We talked about how canola oil is the preferred recommended oil from the World Health Organization, who's supposed to be the expert in nutrition. But let's talk about just the common sense of how tallow, which is beef fat, when you cook ground beef, you cook a steak, you see that fat, or you cook some bone broth and you get some a fat layer on the top. That's how tallow is made. That's it. You just cook the fat, you, um, you take away some of that fat and you save it. Whereas canola oil, there's all this processing, there's degumming, refining, bleaching, deodorizing. And this is the details of that whole process. So how do we know if this is even healthy for us, right? There's pre-bleaching, so it changes the color. There's post-bleaching, there's deodorization. So one of the reasons people like these seed oils is because there's no flavor. Well, they purposely did that. They use chemical solvents to make there be no flavor to these plant-based foods. And then they, you know, they plastization shortening and then margarine is all the way down here. And the concern with all of this is that these oils become very, very unstable with this whole process. There's about seven or eight times that they, um, they heat the oil way more than it can, should be heated. And then it becomes um, a lot more rancid and the electrons within the oil becomes a lot more unstable. So if we think about that, most disease um, starts with inflammation, which is like unstable things going on in your body. And if we're consuming oils that are unstable, right, all the most of the dressings that we eat, all the processed foods we eat, they use these seed oils, because again, cholesterol is bad. So they would never use animal fats. Well, how much of this is causing the inflammation in your body? And one other thing I forgot to mention with the canola oil, this plant the original plant of the rapeseed is actually toxic for humans. So they process it in a way that it becomes less toxic. But I think in the long run, it's not ideal. Um, There are scores called protein digestibility. So we think, oh, a quinoa or beans are the same protein digestibility and absorption um, capabilities as meat. But it's not true. There's all these types of scoring that you can do with protein. And if you see down here, um, you see cooked peas, and I'll talk about this in a second, but cooked peas, the PD cast or the scoring is 0.6. And the closer you are to one means that it's very digestible and very absorbable, meaning that your body can really absorb the protein uh, nutrients. And you see the diet score is even worse. Same thing with almonds, it's 0.39. So the score is really, really bad, even though maybe on the market shelves, you'll see protein is like nine grams. Well, that then you should do that multiplication times 0.39. And that may be your protein. The other thing is with milk and with um, other foods there, there is no amino acid, which is the breakdown of the proteins. There's no amino acids that are deficient. Whereas all of these, there's actually amino acids that we need that we require to consume from foods that are deficient. 
For example, with almonds, again, there's a deficiency in lysine. So if you are plant-based, well, you're pretty much deficient in all lysine. So when kids are being fed almond milk instead of whole milk or even low-fat milk, generally they're probably getting deficient in lysine. And I don't remember all the specifics of lysine, but you really need it to have um, to maintain your muscle mass. So imagine what's happening to that kid that's consuming that. Let's talk about the cooked peas real quick. So it's also a little bit less, um, first of all, it has less absorption, but it's also deficient in methionine and cysteine. I bring up cooked peas because we are going to talk about like the the new plant-based burgers, which are pretty much made from peas. Uh, this is another graphic that again shows um, the, the ability of bioavailability. That means it's the ability for your bo- body to absorb and assimilate all the nutrients. We think of spinach, and I was plant-based for 12 years, so I used to eat a pound of spinach a day. We think of spinach being super rich in iron. Well, I was anemic during my pregnancy because I was still plant-based, even though I was eating a pound of spinach. And now it makes sense. The ability to absorb the iron from spinach is next to none whereas the meat is much higher. In addition to that, most plant-based foods, they're not in the vitamin version that we need for our body to utilize it. For example, vitamin A, um, there's uh, we have the carotenoids that then have to get converted into the retinol version of vitamin A. Uh, same thing with um, iron. There's non-heme iron versus heme iron. Well, what if your body is not healthy enough to do these conversions? And there's a bunch, there's also B12 is fully deficient in plants. So it's just, again, some things to think about. So if your digestion is not that good, your MSH is kind of low, you have leaky gut. Well, you probably have a better chance of absorbing your nutrients with meat, And, um, and instead of eating plant-based foods, which maybe your body can't do the conversion. In addition, as we talked about, if we're eating like those seed oils and other things, we may be also um, proliferating more inflammation in the body. Um, so this is the ingredients of Beyond Meat's pea protein. First of all, pea protein is not regulated by the FDA. So I did some, I remember doing some research and there was some nutrient facts that just didn't make sense. If you were to grab a bunch of peas versus this pea protein isolate version, that some of the nutrients did not make sense. But again, they are not regulated. So they can put whatever they want in their powders. Uh, one, one research showed that most um, plant-based protein powders um, have very high levels of um, heavy metals. You can just research that. And there's a lot of papers that come up, but again, you, you, we, we think of this beyond meat as healthy. It's good for the environment. It's good for us. It's super healthy, but look at the ingredients. So again, it has that expeller pressed canola oil. And then the refined coconut oil. So refined just means that it's extra processed. And then all these other things, which we don't even really know what they mean. But if you eat ground beef, normally the ingredients, they don't even have a label. It's just ground beef. But we are considering this to be healthier. And in addition, it's actually much more expensive per pound to purchase this type of meat. This shows the amount of protein you would have to consume to even get the three ounces of protein and protein is the building blocks of our bodies. If you want to maintain muscle mass, if you want to have less, you know, bone degradation, we need to eat protein. It's what helps our bodies to stay intact as we age. And we need to eat even more as we age. So think about three ounces of steak has 25 grams of protein. If you are plant-based, you would have to eat three cups or six and a half cups of peanut butter just to stay equivalent. And again, this doesn't even consider the anti-nutrients or all the other toxins that comes with this. 
we are told to eat the rainbow when it comes to plant-based foods. First of all, eating the rainbow is a very new ideology. I think it's less than 50 years old, but let's talk about the rainbow. There are six vegetables here, as you can see, cabbage, Brussels sprouts, et cetera, but they're all from the same plant. So how are we eating the rainbow? This is very human man-made foods that we've really got from the wild mustard plant. Again, it makes you wonder, are we really eating the rainbow or has it been just a great marketing ploy? And then here's some stuff about kale. You know, kale is considered a um, super nutrient dense food. Well, kale is high in oxalates. I'll be talking a little bit about anti-nutrients in a second, but again, it's a hyper accumulator of thallium and cesium, which is very high in heavy metals. So if you think about the, the leaves of the kale, they hold on to water a lot more. So there's all these other things. Um, it's one of the highest foods um, from the EWG's dirty dozen for highest pesticide residues. And it also contains a compound called progoitrin, which interferes with thyroid hormone synthesis. Yet we think of kale as one of the most superfoods and why. The other thing I want to mention is when I was doing my research for carnivore cure, a lot of the organic farms, while I do think organic is better than the conventional because of the GMOs and such and conventional foods, but organic farms, every pesticide they use, they have to use more of it and more often. And at a certain point, maybe more is just not as ideal too. There are some organic compounds that work so well that they create um, lab grown versions and they don't call it organic, but it's the same exact product. It's just something to think about. Um, okay. So these are some of the plant-based nutrients that are limiting, meaning that there's just not enough of, so you would maybe even have to supplement. So vitamin B12, D3, these are all the conversion of ones that are converted to the versions that our body needs. And then the images below it are all the meats that have the most or very rich in these foods. So if you look right here, for example, vitamin D3, three and a half ounces has 124% of your daily value. You're not going to find things like that in uh, plant-based foods. So these are some of the nutritional changes in foods over the years. So as we are monocropping, meaning that we're using the same land and uh, harvesting the same food over and over, our soils are getting depleted. We need animals to... Um, defecate and have the soil be rich in nutrients. But as we're just using the same fields over and over, as you can see, the nutrients are depleted. So even though we think calcium may be rich in tomatoes, is it really? And that's the thing again, to consider. And then if you think about all the plant toxins or anti-nutrients and all the chemicals that are sprayed in it, it becomes a question of, is this really a friend or a foe? I mentioned anti-nutrients, so I'll teach this really quickly. If you think about we at this time, I guess we know we understand gluten. Um, a lot of people understand lectins because of Dr. Steve Gundry, but every plant wants to survive and wants to have more offspring, just like animals do, right? Animals, but animals can run away with the um, from their predators, but plants cannot. They are stuck in the soils. So the way that they protect themselves is they have plant toxins. And these are some of the plant toxins. There's many, many of plant toxins. So when you notice, oh, for some reason, I don't do well with um, onions or I don't do well with almonds, maybe it's actually the anti-nutrient that you are sensitive to. The other thing about anti-nutrients, the reason they're even called against nutrients is because most of these anti-nutrients, they block the absorption of minerals. So the thought is that an animal comes by and eats these foods or human and either your stomach starts hurting and you have to run to the um, toilet 
or that you started noticing that you're not having good nutrition and your body is just starting to waste away. That's the mineral deficiencies. And all, most all um, anti-nutrients, that's the biggest thing they do is they, uh, they block your mineral levels. We're also taught at a young age uh, that I, well, at least for me, I remember that I was taught don't eat berries, you know, don't pick berries off the bushes to eat and don't eat mushrooms off the floor. Just you can only eat certain kinds. So if plant-based was the ideal way of eating, why are there more plant species that we're not supposed to be eating? And why are we always told to be careful of certain plants and that we should only eat the plants either that we've raised or that we get at the grocery store? If plant-based was truly the way that we should be eating. So I'm not surprised at this number. There was one study done. I'm sorry, I don't have the, um, the, the link here, but 84% of vegans and vegetarians actually go back to eating meat. And I'm not really surprised. All of these um, graphics show the nutrient density. So I literally went into the USDA database, which is the master database of all nutrition. And you can see the levels of nutrition for all the different foods. Ribeye, for example, just in three and a half ounces, because 100 grams is the standard um, way to measure these things. Look how rich it is in B12. B12 is deficient in plant-based foods. So it has 134% of your daily value. And then pork, look at the B1. It has 33% in just three and a half ounces. Salmon is rich in a lot of the minerals and then a lot of the B vitamins and look at the omega-3 levels. So again, I think ideally a rainbow of meats is very ideal and oysters are really rich in minerals. I'm going to give you this again. So we'll just go through this, but all of these and choline is really rich in eggs. If you are going to eat eggs, I highly recommend eating the egg yolks. I know a lot of people are sensitive to eggs. So if you can't tolerate eggs, that's fine. But if you notice here, egg whites have almost nothing yet. We are pushed to eat egg whites and not any of the egg yolks, but it's the egg yolks that have the nutrition. It's not the egg whites. So just continuing, there's a lot of nutrient, um, chicken wings is really rich in vitamin K. So if, as you can see, you can look through all of this and the, and all the nutrient densities. So I did this, um, this painstakingly, um, you can see all the, the foods and all the nutrients that it contains essential means that your body is required to get this vitamin or mineral outside of your diet. And you can see all the essential vitamins and minerals. So if you look closely here, most of these are animal-based foods. Now avocado did make it and so did spinach. I think broccoli would make it too, honestly. But if you consider all of the anti-nutrients, so I think some of them are uh, rich in potassium or some other type of mineral. But if you were to consider all the mineral binding effects of uh, plant toxins, you're probably not getting most of those nutrients including iron for spinach, for example. So remember I brought up uh, bananas for potassium because we're getting deficient in potassium. So again, why do we think potassium is richest? One medium banana has 7.6% of your daily value. Whereas bacon three and a half ounces, which we think is so bad for us has 12%. And again, there's no anti-nutrients. There's no levels of sugar making you go up and down. So again, why do we think that when um, uh, bacon actually has much more potassium? And then I did the same thing for magnesium. Um, again, lots of anti-nutrients and then even three and a half ounces has 24 to 31% of your magnesium levels. You would have to eat 105 almonds to get the hundred grams, but there's a bunch of anti-nutrients and almost all um, almonds grown in the U S are pasteurized with the toxin because just in case, so even if you're buying raw almonds, typically they are not truly raw. They have this chemical outside of it. 
same thing with calcium, you know, we've talked about kale, but you can eat dairy. I know not everyone can tolerate dairy, but the point is that there are actually more truths. If you were to dig deeper into the nutritional, um, information. So, you know, talking about a lot of the hormones, I know there's a lot of information in the wellness space where grass finished is the only kinds of meat we should eat. And it is more ideal in terms of the environment for the better treatment of animals. There's no question about that. I think even um, supporting your local farmer, but when it comes to nutritional content from um, the level of iron versus the level of iron, they are the same. So I am an advocate of buying what you can afford because really when it comes to healing your body and nutritional density, they're pretty much the same. Now, if you can't tolerate the conventional because of maybe they were fed soy or something, that's totally fine. But I just don't want people to think I can only eat the highest quality versions. So this is the pyramid I recommend. I'm just going to go through these quickly. Um, This is what to kind of eat in a day. Again, always know your sensitivity. So if you don't think you could tolerate certain foods, remove them for a while. This is my biggest thing about SIRS and carnivores. SIRS recommends the lowest amylose diet. Amylose is basically sugar. So you eat less um, sugary foods and you want to also reduce the inflammation from your foods because SIRS is an inflammatory illness. I've been working with Dr. McMahon on this, but what we have found, and so it's a speculation thus far, is that MMP9 actually may lower with carnivores. And the reason is omega-3s help limit the production of MMP9 by downregulating the receptors. And so when you have large glucose swings, it inhibits the effects of omega-3s. Well, carnivores don't really eat any glucose. So maybe that's why, again, this is a hypothesis right now, but that maybe by having less uh, glucose, our omega-3s can support the downregulation of MMP9. I know most people don't want to eat carnivore. I get it. Meat only sounds really forever, but think of it as while you're healing, right? Well, while you're healing, going through the shoemaker protocol or whatever other protocol you're doing for mold illness you think about what's hard. I mean, eating meat only is very hard, but binging and restricting is also hard. Being unwell is hard, but struggling with SIRS or um, chronic inflammation from mold is hard too. So think about which hard do you want? I mean, maybe this is a period of time that you have to eat this way, but you can slowly add back foods. I'm not a, so, I mean, that's the conclusion. I basically, I believe in wellness for all. I believe that we can get to root cause healing with removing a lot of the inflammation and toxins from our foods. And then we can just try to get to root cause healing. Sometimes it's more than the diet as we know with SIRS, but if we can support the body with the diet, less inflammation, I think we are on a much better start than eating foods that are causing inflammation and worsening the whole SIRS effect. Okay, guys, I know that a lot of you are already meat based following my content, but I think this is just a good resource to just really share why a meat based diet is ideal. And it really touches everything from hormones, to why we struggle with mental illness to gut health to lots of stuff happening with COVID and the diet, and even cholesterol and why that's not even truly real and the pharmaceutical company and so on and so forth. I hope that this information was helpful. And thank you to Jenny Johnson and her team for letting me share this presentation with you all. Okay, guys, you know the drill, make sure to eat a lot of meat, take care of your bodies, because it is the only place you have to live. I will talk to you later. Bye, guys. Thanks for listening to the Nutrition with Judy podcast. If you liked what you heard today, please make sure to leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast app so more listeners like you can find the show. 
If you want more practitioner care and support, head over to nutritionwithjudy.com slash groups so you can get more real talk about carnivore, the environment, and root cause healing. You can also find my content on Nutrition with Judy's YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Make sure to sign up for my weekly newsletter and learn more about in-depth articles with infographics at nutritionwithjudy.com slash articles. You can find my two books, Carnivore Cure and the Complete Carnivore Diet for Beginners on carnivorecure.com and amazon.com. At the heart of Nutrition with Judy's practice, our mission lies with a deep, unwavering passion for service and community. We will continue to empower you to have the knowledge and tools to live a life nearly symptom-free because we firmly believe in healing and wellness for all.